Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio, purveyor of fine earbuds and headphones. Do you need some new earbuds? Do you need some new headphones? Go to tweakedaudio.com and enter the offer code OTHERPEOPLE, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. Get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. These are earbuds, these are headphones, you can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me in a rapidly expanding desert. This is you temporarily forgetting where you are. How's it going out there? What's happening? My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, today on the program, Hanya Yanagihara is my guest. Her novel, A Little Life, was a finalist for the Man Booker Prize and the National Book Award. It is now available in trade paperback from Anchor Books. And uh, I will be talking with Hanya momentarily. Uh, here at the outset, a quick update on my son, River. He's doing well. The MRI came back. It sort of said what we thought it was going to say. Um, we've got to do some physical therapy on his left arm. We've got to keep an eye on him cognitively. We have to be willing to live in uncertainty. We're thinking positively. I'm trying to keep this uh, succinct. Can you tell? It's a hard thing to be succinct about. I learned this when I tried to email people about it. You just go on and on. There's so many possibilities and potentialities and, you know, you just don't know. That's pediatric neurology, but we're hopeful. And he's doing fine. Uh, you know, aside from the left arm, he's doing fine so far. He's a little bit behind physically, but that's to be expected. And uh, mentally, he's happy and smiley and interactive. So, uh, in other news, AWP, the Association of Writers and Writing Programs, a.k.a. Uh, Nerd Prom, Aww. it's happening in Los Angeles this year, so I don't have an excuse to not go. I have to go. I kind of feel like I have to go. It's in L.A. It's right here in my uh, hometown. So, with this in mind, I'm going to be making some appearances that I want to let you guys know about uh, on Friday, April 1st at the theater at the Ace Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. I will be appearing at the 10th anniversary uh, edition of the Literary Death Match. 
hosted by uh, Adrian Todd Zaniga. I will be on stage interviewing Melissa Broder, the poet, the essayist, the prolific, uh, prolific tweeter. Perhaps you've heard of her. She has an extremely popular Twitter feed uh, at Melissa Broder, but an even more popular feed called at So Sad Today with more than 300,000 followers uh, the last time I looked. And as of uh, mid-March, she will have her debut essay collection coming out on Grand Central called So Sad Today. And uh, Melissa and I, uh, we happen to be writing partners and uh, good buddies. She and I write television projects together, which I don't think I've mentioned on this program, but we do. And uh, she and I are going to be on stage at the Ace Hotel Theater during Literary Deathmatch. I'm going to interview her for a few minutes publicly. That's on Friday, April 1st, April Fool's Day. This is not an April Fool's Day joke, though uh, how can you trust me after last year with uh, the now infamous Michiko Kakatani episode? <laughs> You're just going to have to trust me, basically. <laughs> uh, Friday, April 1st, 8 p.m., Literary Deathmatch, Ace Hotel Theater. For ticket information, go to literarydeathmatch.com. So there's that. And then on uh, Saturday, the following night, Saturday, April 2nd, I will be participating in a panel discussion at uh, I.O. West Theater. It's like Improv Olympic West Theater. That's at 6366 Hollywood Boulevard, and it starts at 8 p.m. The event is called the Lit Comedy Roundtable. It's a gathering of book people who love comedy and comedy people who love books, and I think we're all going to be discussing how or even if the two things inform one another. Uh, The event, which is sponsored by Curbside Splendor, the uh, great independent press out of Chicago is going to be hosted by Dave Reedy. Other panelists include Kate Lambert, Anthony King, Kenesha Foster, Owen Smith, and Jack P. Moore. Admission is free. For more information, check out curbsidesplendor.com. All right. So. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. I think that's enough. I think we should just get to the show. This is one of those shows where I just want to get to the show. Enough out of me. Let's, uh, let's get to Hanya Yanagihara and uh, her book, A Little Life, and the conversation that we had. Uh, A Little Life, now available in trade paperback from Anchor Books. It was a real pleasure getting to talk with Hanya, and I think you guys are going to enjoy this one. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Hanya Yanagihara, and her novel, once again, is called A Little Life. Whenever you finish a book, whether that book is 300 pages or 700 pages, 
it's completely a fluke when it happens that quickly. You know, my first book took 18 years to write. And most of that was just because I was lazy. I mean, there are entire years I just procrastinated and didn't do anything. With this book, I got lucky. I knew exactly where I was going, and I was very disciplined about, about writing. I think okay, that, so let me stop, though. Yeah. What, like 700 pages in 18 months. Like what kind of discipline are we talking? I Well, at the time, I was only working four days a week. And for people who work four days a week, you know that that fifth day makes a huge amount of difference. It's like having two extra days. So Monday through Thursday, I wrote from 9 p.m. till midnight. And then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I wrote six hours a day. And if you stick to that regularly, you can get and you know where you're going and you really feel um, like you have momentum, then you can really get it done very, very fast. It's not necessarily... Um, I don't think it'll ever happen again, and it's not necessarily something I'd recommend. It really um, involves a sort of intensity of um, of not only time but quality of time that I think is thrilling in a lot of ways, but also harmful in certain ways as well. I was going to say socially, you're not going out much. If you're, no, you if really, you're... you're really not. You're really not. And I, you know, didn't see anyone for about a year and a half, a little bit longer, um, and it was. Um, as I said, it's it's wonderful. Any anyone who has found themselves really in the groove of a, a creative project, where you feel like the path in front of you is so clear and so unblemished, you know, by by um, by potential, you know, potholes and so on, knows that it's a wonderful sensation, and you just try to ride it for as long as you possibly can. On the other hand, um, it it is a sort of project, this was a sort of project where you feel that the project is really living you and you are being pulled along by this thing, I mean, not to mix metaphors too much, that really won't let you out of its grip. And that's what it felt like for this. So it was it was wonderful and it was, um, and it was draining in ways that I didn't really realize until the book was done and published. Did friendships like atrophy, did you send out like a blast on email like... Or- do you email? I do email. Because we I talked do. before that yes. we came on the air. You don't even have a cell phone. No, I don't have a cell phone. It's it's you know one of my main points of interest, I think. But I, I don't have a cell phone. I do have email, but I have Yahoo, I mean, which basically counts as not having email. It's a little bit better than AOL. A like little a, bit. It's, 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 yeah. it's pretty close to CompuServe. Um, <laughs> but, I, um, I, but yeah, I basically didn't see anyone for a couple of years. I saw my best friend, who's also my reader. We saw each other every Friday. Jared. Yes, and I made a point of that. But, um, but most other people, I, I, I just didn't see at all. And so when you go to work four days a week, are you able to get your mind off of the project? Like, did having that day job in a project that's coming, um, you know, out of you this intensely and this quickly, did having the day job provide like a healthy balance? Yes, very much. I mean, it was a relief to get to work and shut off for those nine hours. Uh, it, 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 you know, it makes the hours spent at home much more intense and it gives you a real clarity of, um, of, of, of time in a way, you know, it makes you much more disciplined about time. It makes the hours that you have much more, um, distilled, I suppose. Um, but on the other hand, it's wonderful to go and, you know, gossip with your coworkers and, you know, worry about billing and administrative work and, and not have to think about the life of, of the book, uh, during the daytime. This is some intense stuff that you're covering in the lives in the book. Yes, but it's not so much the subject matter. It was that in order to create a book like this, you have the world of the book has to feel, and the characters in the book have to feel more real to you than the world that you're inhabiting and, and the characters in your life. And again, it's a giddy sensation when that happens, but you can also feel yourself 
slipping away from your own life, which is why it's helpful to have something as grounding as a job to go to, where you physically have to get up, get dressed, put on a different face, be presentable, talk to other people, and where you are no longer um, the creator of a world, but you know, but part of it. Yeah. Well, how, and how do you know with a 700-page book, I mean, with any book, but especially I think with a, with a, a book as hefty as this one, how do you know when it's done? Did you know? Was it was it final? I, I did. Um, you know, I knew the last lines before I began. I knew how it would break into parts. I had the structure laid out. So it was a very clear path for me in the way that, say, the first one wasn't. And that most of my writing, you know, when it's, uh, whether it's a, a sort of a short piece or, or you know, a 4,000 4, word essay, is not that clear. But this book was very clear. So I knew, um, I was able to really time when I would be done. I kind of knew how long it would be, and I could kind of guess when I would be finished, just kind of based on my pace. And then you would hand them off to Jared, like sections of the book off to Jared, who's like, yes. your, he's your reader. He's my reader. Oh, you're, my... Ri- you're writing to him? Yes, to, very much. To please him, basically. Or to impress him. I don't know if it's to please or impress, although that's part of it. It's, I suppose, a different kind of communication. I think anyone who has a reader, a single reader that they write for, um, it, is in a way trying to communicate in a different way outside of the vernacular of, of everyday chatter, you know, of, well, my life is this and and I'm doing this and I saw so-and-so and we talked about this. When you share a novel like this, which is about friendship ultimately, it is a way of, I think, sometimes articulating what you couldn't naturally do in the course of a conversation because it would seem too artificial or too forced or too awkward. But you hope that, or I did at least, that when he was reading it, he was reading it for its text, um, but also recognizing, I I suppose, some sort of subtextual messages that I wasn't even quite aware of, but I hoped he would be able to articulate when I wasn't. And was he able to do that? Yes, very much so. I mean, I think, you know, great readers can be great readers in in different ways. I mean, some people are very good at picking up um, on the small details, on word choice, on um, on uh, sort of rhythm and, and pace. And some people are very good at the conceptual uh, questions, you know, the, the logic of the book, you know, does the character um, not only sound like he's supposed to, but does he think like he's supposed to? And some people, I think, are good at, um, at, at the sort of the construction of, of a book, you know, is it is it pacing itself well? Is it hanging together well? He happens to be good at all of those things. And so I would finish What's a his section. What's his phone number? <laughs> um, you can't have him. So I, I would finish a section. I would send it to him and he would write back with an immediate reply. He reads very fast. And then I would send him about 10 to 12 questions, some of them very granular and some of them big. And he would write back answers and also add in, in his own points. And sometimes these two are very granular, like um, Thanksgiving is always on a Thursday, um, little things, little copy editing notes, um, or I'm not sure you're using the right word here. And sometimes they would be bigger. Um, you, you know, I, I don't think that this is how Willem would sound, or, um, I don't think that, um, I'm not quite buying the sex scene here. So things like that. So that would be the first round. Then I would send him another set of questions again, about 10 to 12, and he would answer those. And then every Friday when we see each other, we would talk about the life of this book. And so in a very real way, um, this book came out of a long conversation with him and it does feel to me like a record of those months. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's really I don't you know, he read my first book as well. He reads everything I write, so I, I really don't know. Um at, at this point he's so much a part of, of 
the process of writing that I don't know how I would do it if he suddenly stopped doing it. Yeah, well, you know, like it's not uncommon for, as, as I'm sure you know, it's not uncommon for writers to have that single reader, whether it's a spouse or it's a friend or right. whoever it is, like somebody who uh, understands you. Yes. Somebody who can save you from yourself. Yes. You know, when you are off track or you're off tone or whatever it might be, it's probably a, a great relief to get his feedback. It is. And, you know, it's not always, I think, for a lot of writers, someone who's their best friend or their closest companion. In my case, it happens to be. But I'm, I'm interested always in writers who, whose reader is not, um, is someone with whom they have a little friction sometimes or someone um, who is simply their reader. They're not their best friend. They're not, you know, their lover. They're not, they have, their sole relationship is as reader. And I find those relationships very interesting. And, and what's the case? You're also friends with Jared. Yes. So it's a yes. friendship and he's your reader. Yes. And you yes. guys are tight. And this is a book about friendship. Right. Right. So it's all, it's, it's all, all of a piece. Yes. Yeah. Uh, did he change the book fundamentally or cause like I imagine with a book that comes out this hot and fast, like maybe it was mostly intact or did the feedback you get editorially from him and then from your editor, um, uh, you know, at anchor at double day, at double day. Um, did you, did the book go through massive changes editorially? Not through massive changes, but certainly the way that the characters think about friendship, the way that they think about love, the way they think about sex, many of those things, it's not that they shifted dramatically, but they definitely morphed and developed through our conversations. You know, there's a scene, there's, um, sort of a leitmotif in the book of, of um, these hyenas that chase the main character, Jude, um, from time to time. A cheery and, little leitmotif. Yes, a cheery <laughs> little one. And and I when, I, when it first occurs in the book, you know, Jared and I have been talking about it, and he said, I think the hyenas are sex. And he was absolutely right, but I hadn't been able to articulate what they were. Um, I knew that they were a manifestation of Jude's fears, and um, anxieties, but until he said the, the hyenas to him are sex itself, I hadn't been able to articulate that. So a lot of um, what he was doing in the process of writing this book was really, um, I think, naming what I had on the page. And by able by by doing that, by being able to explain to me what a metaphor meant. Um, he was able to, um, it, it helped me continue that metaphor in some ways throughout the book. It's like telling you, it's like teaching you how to understand your own book. Yeah, completely. <laughs> yes, very much so. Um, what did, what did the actual nuts and bolts of a writing session look like for you on this book? You have your 9 PM to midnight window. You yes. get home on Wednesday night. You've been at work all day. Yeah. You sit down. Uh, if you don't have a cell phone, like, do you have internet? I do. Um, but I was pretty disciplined when, when, uh, when I know I have to get something done or where I, when I feel the compulsion to get something done, it's not a big distraction for me. And, um, and I would just sit down and just start writing it. it I, I had just a very basic word document with, um, with sort of dates, fragments of sentences, sort of things I had to remind myself to do because this book doesn't have years in it. Um, I couldn't, you know, date things by years. So I kept track by, you know, year one, year two, year three, year four. And sometimes I would, you know, I would say, don't forget to include this. You mentioned this in part, 
part one, you have to make sure to put this back in part four. Or Willem starts filming this particular movie in November, make sure that he's going to be done by, you know... Like consistency yes, issues. consistency issues. And that was a big part of it. And that way, it felt very much like um, directing a play or, or a movie where you really have to make sure that, you know, when the gun ap- appears in the first scene, that it somehow either goes off or gets put away in the third. So it, it, there was a lot of just tracking of, of my own details. Um, and that's really something I... I I kept an eye on. I mean, the time is measured in this book by anniversaries, you know, by Thanksgivings, by birthdays, um, by by different measures of time. And so in order to make that sort of elasticity of time work, I had to be fairly structured about how I was keeping track of it. Yeah, I find that in writing that time shifts, uh, especially if you're jumping a significant period of time, uh, are, are very difficult to do well without jarring the reader and when they're handled well and they feel seamless i'm I'm always impressed by that as a reader where you're like oh you know they just jumped and i didn't even bat an eye yeah me too you, you have to be careful with it yeah me too i mean i always think that you know the reader will really go along with you in many many ways but i i think as a reader that the more sort of fantastical the book is the book's premises or its characters or its themes the more I really want something, um, I really want terra firma. And that terra firma is the structure and it's the sense of sort of authorial timekeeping. That if you think that someone is really watching out for the details so you, the reader, don't have to worry about them, then you can kind of relax into the life of the book and forgive it, I think, a lot more. Yeah, if you're, if you're, if you're worried about the time, yeah, then it's not a good sign. No, <laughs> as a that's reader. right, that's right, that's right. <laughs> and what about... Um, you know, as, like as a related question to the issue of time, the very conscious decision to remove from the book anything um, that could mark it like politically. Yeah. There's no mention of 9-11 in the book. There's no, you know what I'm saying? The book kind of I do. exists in I mean, a timeless the, New York. That's right. And the, the New York of the book is really evoked by interior landscapes in both senses. So there's not a lot of descriptions of architecture or of scenery or of the exteriors of New York. What you have instead are the insides of apartments and, you know, of course, more figuratively, the insides of these characters. And when you take away, when you strip any fiction of historical markers, of context in a way, what you're effectively doing is trapping the reader within the emotional lives, the interior lives of your characters. And it has the effect, I think, if if you can do it correctly, of making the work feel intimate and also claustrophobic. And there really is nowhere else for the reader to go. They have to remain in this sort of um, sort of you know um, closed circuit of a world that you've created for them. Yep. The other thing is, I just think it's sort of a cheat in you know contemporary naturalistic fiction when, and this you know happens quite a bit. You're reading a book and and it, you know then the book will announce to you. And then 9-11 happened, or then, you know, 2008 came and the stock, you know, and the stocks fell. And, you know, it, and you, the reader, is supposed to fill in for the characters what they must be feeling or how the mood must have shifted. And it's just too, um, it's too easy in a way. It's it's depending upon the reader's own emotional reactions to, own re- emotional reaction to history, which you, the writer, assume is going to be exactly like yours. And is A, often not the case, and B, you should, I think if you have a book about history, about recent history, you must have something to say about it. Um, and this, that just wasn't the point of this book. Yeah, this was about the interior. Right. And uh, were these, like, that's a rule for the book. Yes. 
That was a rule that you had in your head yes. at the outset. Yes, very much uh, were so. Were there any other rules? Well, originally there were going to be no women at all, and it was just getting too artificial. I mean, there's a lot of artifice in this book, and there's a lot of um, it, it's there's a lot of fabulism, and um, the book is a fantasy, and it does demand. I think if you try to read it as a contemporary naturalist, a straight contemporary naturalistic book, it's not going to be satisfying, and so it does ask for the reader to succumb, and he either will or he won't, and. Um, but it doesn't. Um, it, it plays by some rules and then doesn't by others. And I think that I've been lucky to have people who have been generous enough to succumb to it. People have very strong reactions to this book. As I was in prepping for this, I was reading online reviews, essays about the book, blog posts. People- I haven't read anything. You know, I don't read anything about it um interesting and there's for, a lot of good stuff by the way well i mean i just i just can't i feel like you either you know when my first book was coming out um a writer i know said he said the good ones are never good enough and the bad ones stay with you forever and i think that's probably true so it's just safer not to you know you either i think only believe the good stuff in which case you're you know a huge douchebag or you believe everything, and it, I think it sort of gnaws at you. So it's just, it's just easier not to read anything. But it takes discipline. It's one thing to believe. It's one thing to know that and to say that, but it's another it, thing it, to execute on it. It doesn't really take that much discipline. If you're not on Twitter, if you're not on Facebook, if you are not actively following um, your book's kind of critical way through the world, the first, you know, it's like cutting out sugar. The first, you know, six weeks are really hard, and then it, it becomes pretty much just a fact of 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 your life do you eat sugar yes okay Good. yeah yeah <laughs> i was gonna be like this is impossible no no cell no, phone, no no sugar. no no i but but it's just it's just a, a saner position um i i don't know how people who read reviews and are you know still normal you know functioning people do it i, I just i think i'm too weak for it okay well one of the things that's said in a lot of the critical response to the book is that it does not offer uh, a resolution or resolutions that um, are feel good and redemptive in the way that uh, narratives that deal with some of the themes that this book deals with often are. Was that something that you set out to do? Was this was this book in any way a response to that kind of book? There are so many of them. You know, these redemptive narratives. Yeah, that- I mean, I well, I think that's sort of a goofy kind of criticism. I mean, I. You know, I mean, if if every single, I mean, that's asking every single book to have not only a happy ending, but the same ending. And of course, that's, you know, not what um, any sort of fiction should be. Or like giving readers an emotional experience that they're either like primed for or used to based on, you know. Well, I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, because I think it goes to this question of how much can a reader take? And I really think this is one of the discussions I had with my editor. Um, And I think it's a legitimate question, but... I think the reader can take anything. I think where it gets dangerous is when you as the writer start thinking or the creator of any sort of project start thinking, okay, well, the reader can't take this quite, but they can take this. You know, your job is not to be the reader's nanny. Your job is not to be, um, is not to second guess their sort of, um, their sort of emotional um, armor. It's, it's to simply present the most, um, the best realized world that you can and that's it and you know people either will want to live in that world for a pre period or they won't and if they don't that's fine um but if they do 
it only behooves you to try to make that world as as, as whole as possible. Okay. Last question about uh, writing this thing so quickly. Yes. Uh, with a book of this length, written in 18 months, in a creative fever. That's fair, right? Yeah. Um, these characters, this story had to be brewing within you for a long time. And then finally, when you sat down to do it, that's kind of why it shot out of you. Like how long had you been thinking about these characters in this world and these themes? Like, It's a great question. Probably about five years. I mean, anyone who's written something before knows that. And I've said this before in speeches, but I think it's really true that sometimes the hardest, the, the reason I think it takes so long to start something. And the reason it seems so scary is because when you're, when you, before you've begun, you know, let's say you have an idea for a novel and the novel exists in a thousand different worlds with a thousand different possibilities. Once you start writing, once you, you know, put pen to paper or, you know, open up that, that document, the worlds start disappearing. You start committing yourself to a single one of those narratives and a single world and a single path and a single set of characters and a single outcome. And so in that sense, you are, even before you begin, or even as you just begin, you're mourning what could have been. And it's tempting to want to really live in that world of possibilities. And I did with this book for a long time. And in fact, it wasn't until I actually began that I realized I'd, I'd been thinking about it for probably, as I said, five years. And at some point, I just thought, I'm just going to pick a path and go with it. But it was difficult because I knew I was giving up a lot of other ways that this story, in terms of its themes and its characters and and, and even to some extent its narrative, um, could go. And you're eliminating them. It's, it's, it's like putting things... Um, you know, on the cutting room floor be, before they've even existed. That's interesting. I've never heard somebody say it that way, but it, was, it makes sense. Oh, thank you. It's That's nice. nice it's nice to have. It's just nice to have that world of possibility. It's a safer place to be. Yeah. And then suddenly you're out on the tightrope with your one choice, and yeah, exactly. And you've got to make that one choice work. Um, and then, speaking of choices, your editor at Double Day is Jerry Howard. Yes. Okay. Um, another close relationship, I'm sure. Uh, that had a big impact on the final product. And I was reading that you kind of dug your heels in at some point in the editorial process and insisted on keeping the book at its length and not yes. removing a large chunk of it. Yes. Why? Well, I just didn't think he had, if he had had a compelling reason um, beyond, I don't think we should publish, you know, it was a 970, 960 manuscript pages. Beyond that, then I would have probably listened to it more. And it was a business decision. I think he was concerned about the saleability of a, you know, of a 960-page book. And that's a legitimate concern when you're with a big house. It's a business, and they're going to have business concerns. And you, as the writer, have to decide how much you want to negotiate with those business concerns and how much it's really about business and how much it's about um, the work itself, the, uh, how much it's about the artistry. And I just didn't think he had a good enough argument. And I could tell he didn't think he had a good enough argument either. And that's when I knew that it wasn't, and I thought about it for a long time because I did want to be with an editor who um, felt passionately about the book, although I knew he had reservations. And so, you know, I thought about it for probably a couple of months. And then I told my agent that 
um, I was grateful for what Doubleday had done for my first book, especially because it it wasn't doing well. Was it a two book deal? No, I, so I wasn't under contract for okay. this book, um, but I wasn't going to cut the pages, and I would understand if they didn't want the book and we take it elsewhere. So it actually it took a, a while for the book itself to be bought. Although it was complete when I turned it into Jerry, um, it it didn't get actually you know there wasn't a contract for a while. It kicked around for a bit. While they were, like, deliberating. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, like you say, it's a business. Some of it is like, well, it's going to increase the cost of printing. Yeah, exactly. It makes it harder to market. That's right. People people are intimidated. That's right. You know, the general reader sees a big book sitting on the shelf, and it's like, oh, That's right, that's right. I got to really commit to this. Yeah, that's right, that's right. It's just a harder sell. And and you're right. I mean, and then there's, you know, very basic sort of prosaic concerns. Like, when when I found out, when a book, not a manuscript, but a book, goes over a thousand pages they have to send it off to some special printer somewhere that handles manuscripts that size and that you know doubles their costs or something so there are you know real concerns and um and and you as the author um have to decide how how much you um how how much you you do or don't want to try to compromise and you decide. and on what you yeah know. and well i think that the i mean you sort of like the analogy I like to use is a court of law. Like when you know, whether you're in a, a, a writing workshop or you're dealing with an editor, or you're dealing with Jared, right? You know, the person can have a point of contention with your book, but unless they can present you with compelling evidence as to why you should do things their way, then you should stick to your way. Yeah, I mean that's the big difference between writing for a magazine, say, and writing a book. I mean, writing for a magazine is all about compromise. You know, your editor reads it, a top editor reads it, the copy editor reads it, the fact checker reads it, and the editor-in-chief reads it. They all make changes on it. It's very, very rare that you, the author, have final say, unless you're a really big-name author. In books, you have much more um, control over the product in a strange way. And there's certain things you have less control over, but you have you have the right to say no. You know, in in books, if a copy editor comes to you and says, I don't really like this, you can set it. You can make up words. They right. can't change it. In magazines, you don't have the final say. Someone else will. And so, you know, I, I, I compromise so much in my in my job. It is most of what my job is is some sort of of, of compromise or 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 sort of literary diplomacy. And I knew that I, I wasn't going to do it just for the sake of doing it for my book. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, you, you, you do enough of it. Yeah. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why, I think one of the common strains among people who gravitate towards writing books is the control that it allows. It might, yes. it might be a pain in the ass. It might be even harder to make money doing than right. it is to do other, you know, arts or, yeah. You know, but at, the, at least the words on the page are almost totally under your control they are and it is one of the very few um mediums that is so um such a solo endeavor i mean you know you talk to people who are playwrights or actors or directors and so on and they're very they're collaborative to different degrees but i i think for for writing fiction and 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 poetry it is something that you have a great deal more control over than perhaps anything else and you're working collaboratively you know what i want to get to your day job so i'll hold that question because before we do, I want to ask you about the success that this book has had, uh, especially in the wake of a first novel that didn't sell. Yeah, like gang, but like most first novels. Yes, like most. Uh, you know, but that makes it harder because you come it out, does. you come out with a second novel, and it's like, oh, they're going to look at your sales That's numbers. Right. And That's have, right. It's almost harder than selling a first novel because it is. 
the people at the publishing houses have something to weigh it against. That's right. And, you know, I mean, and it's harder to get publicity. I mean, it's easier to get publicity for a debut um, novel. I mean, not that it's easy, but it's easier. There's at least you always hope that um, that you're going to be making an interesting discovery with a second book or a third book. There's less of that. I mean, there's less interest. There's less of a news peg. There's just there's there's less to um, hang the marketing on in general. Did you feel pressure? Were you like this? This had better be great. Or no, I, no, no. I mean, I, because I don't think anyone really did think it was going to go anywhere. I mean, my my hope for this book was that it would find a very small group of people who felt the book was speaking directly to them who felt, and I described it to my editor as I wanted it to feel like a magical object to them, you know, something that they, you know, were digging in under a tree and they suddenly discovered this strange misshapen glowing thing and they thought, oh, well, this is mine. And I thought that that, I thought if I got lucky, that might happen to, to, that to a small, passionate group of readers, it would feel like a book that they um, didn't, that they might have been waiting for and hadn't known that they were waiting for. A tribe of Jareds. A tribe of Jareds, yeah. <laughs> but but, but I, I, I couldn't have reasonably hoped for anything more than that. And I, I just think it's always good to go into the process with sort of low expectations. Yeah. And then so, okay. So the book comes out, what, I mean, well-reviewed, even though you didn't read them. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you. <laughs> and then... Not insane sales right off the bat. Right. Like when did things start to change where you started to, you know, started to really get some momentum or you start to, started to think, oh my God, there's more people finding this magical object than I thought there ever would be. Well, you know, both from being a writer yourself and from doing these interviews that a house, a publishing house will put about six weeks of muscle into a book and then they kind of have to move on. They don't have the time. They don't have the resources. And, you know, there's... I think this wasn't always the case and it's too bad, but there's sort of this thinking that if it doesn't really hit it right out of the gate, it's probably not. So I was lucky in a way um, because I think the house had, and everyone had been watching what Scribner did with All the Light We Cannot See. And they really hung in there week after week after week with that book. And that book sold far better right out of the gate than mine, I think, probably. But, but the point was that they did a wonderful job publishing it. And I think it was something of a lesson of how you can you can perhaps try to experiment in a low cost way with giving a book a longer life. And I also have to say I got very involved in, in the marketing of this book and I thought I would try um, to find those two hundred people and give them and let them know about the magical object. So I I do know that I really put a lot more time into marketing than with the first book. And I worked on it really hard. And I don't know if it helped or not, but... What did you do? Well, you know, a friend of mine who's a photo editor set up this Instagram account um, for the book. And she reached out to a bunch of photographers she knew and gave them, um, uh, you know, quotes and lines from the book. And they shot original photography for it. And then we also had a series of tote bags made up. And we just tried to... One of the things I know from being in magazines is that, you know, book publishing basically only speaks to the bookosphere. And that's, you know, what, 5,000 people or so. But I think that there's, you know, there are a huge number of readers, maybe not huge, a significant number of readers outside of that world who have no idea of that world's presence. 
and yet find it very hard to um, to discover what they should read next. And so we really worked on finding and targeting people in those worlds, in fashion, um, in in you know in art, um, in um, you know kind of um, an architecture. People who we knew had trouble surfacing books. Um, and wanted to read fiction, and we really went after them, you know, our friends, our friends of friends, our contacts. And so it was just, I think, I think if this book um, found an audience, it was because in a, in a way, we really tried to find people um, who weren't familiar with the sort of literary fiction world, but are always game to buy those books. And that's who we really concentrated on. You, and you targeted people who, I mean, it wasn't just like, they like to read literary fiction, but they're not in the 5,000 people who actually really pay right. attention. They like to li- read literary fiction and have an actual line into this book. A, a, yes. a, a corollary with a character or with some of the themes, etc. Yes. I mean, but not only that. I mean, there was, it, it wasn't just that. I mean, it's not like the... When, so, the, I, but but to go back to your original question, I think one of the things that really turned it around for this book was Garth Greenwell's piece in The Atlantic. In fact, I know that that was the piece apparently that made the biggest um, impact on sales, and it was a piece in which he talked about the book as being a gay novel. And until that piece had come out, I had I thought it was a really interesting way of thinking about the book. It wasn't one I'd considered before, um, and. And and it, he was able, in a way, through that piece, to create um, a self-identifying audience for the book that I hadn't thought of myself. Did you send him flowers or anything? Well, you know, we have the same agent, so I sent him tea. Okay. Yeah. He likes tea? Yes. Okay. Uh, and the cover of the book? Yes. So... It's an arresting cover. You had some input there as well? I did. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I have to say... Well, this is our, this is the second biggest fight was the cover, and this went on for months. And um, I was looking kind of I was kind of thinking about what I wanted to do with this cover. And Jared said, "Well, what about Peter Hujar?" So Peter Hujar, the photographer who took this image, um, was a contemporary um, in the '70s and '80s of you know Robert Maplethorpe, of Keith Haring, Chen Kuangchi, David Wojnarowicz. He was part of the the sort of East Village Nan Golden um, crowd of photographers and, and visual artists. And this picture is called Orgasmic Man. It was shot in 1969, um, and uh, Hujar died in 1987 of complications from AIDS. And it's, I first saw it in a monograph published by Frankel Gallery in San Francisco, who's one of his galleries, called Love and Lust. And it's a picture, it's a, it's a catalog of some of his, I mean, broadly put, erotic works. Um, and, and there's another Orgasmic Man series that's also included in that monograph. But when I saw it, I really knew it was the right image. I mean, I love that you don't know whether he's in pleasure or in pain. What you do know is that you are trespassing upon someone during um, an intimate and vulnerable moment. And there's a sense of violation that comes from looking at that picture and knowing that you're seeing something you're perhaps both privileged to see and are probably not quite supposed to see. And I wanted that, I thought that was such a, a visualization of how I wanted the book to feel itself when you were reading it, that you were being, you were paying witness to a life um, and to the intimacies of a life that you probably shouldn't be seeing. And I, I just thought that there was something that you couldn't turn away from in, in that cover. And there was such um, 
a surplus of emotion that it it immediately announces to the reader that this is going to be a book that um, is not uh, chilly in its I, I think in in the emotions it hopes to provoke in you. It's a great cover. Yeah, I really love it. I and love so that you image. You prevailed there too. I did. I You're did. Tough. But, but I it like took it. it took months. But you know, I think that it's something for readers for writers to know. You have a lot more say over I mean, I didn't have cover approval when but but I think that I understand that for many people they get these horrible covers slapped on them and, and it's and they fight and fight and fight and 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 they just can't win. So I was lucky was lucky in a sense that the house did indulge me for as long as they did, but I was also willing to walk away from the contract if they hadn't given it to me. Wow. Well, see, that's your, that's your ultimate leverage right yeah, there. I guess so. That's a good lesson. So. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that you work a day job. Yes. Magazine editorial. Yes. Right. And, and, and also a contributing writer. Well, so, well, I'm an editor at, at T magazine and I'm, I'm supposed to be writing more. It's just for them. It's just there hasn't been enough time. Well, I mean, you're only writing 700-page novels. You know, you've got... You've well, got... yeah, I just... But so, I, so yes, I have a full-time day job um, now, and um, and I've been at the magazine since June. Okay. And in terms of the work that you've done, you know, not just since June, but prior to that mm -hmm. editorially, did that prepare you in some way um, for going through editorial... Uh, arguments or debates with you know your editor uh, in uh, at Doubleday and elsewhere. Like you know, does, does it give you some sort of insight into the process that you otherwise wouldn't have? Yes, but you know, book publishing and magazine publishing are actually very different. You know, I've worked in both. I started off working in book publishing, and the rhythms of it are different. The sort of personalities in it are different. The way that copy itself is treated that or text. It, you know, it's copy in one place and text in the other is treated. They're just, it's just, there's different levels of sort of, um, I don't even know how to put it. I mean, it's not that one is fetishized more in book publishing, but I think people who write for magazines know that, you know, to a certain extent, it's, you really have to kill your darlings. You have to get the text moving. And there's so many people, as I mentioned earlier, just weighing in on it, that it's difficult to be too precious about your words. With book publishing, there's a much, there's, you know, you can be much more precious and you're given allowance to be. So the way that you sometimes deal with a book editor and the way you deal with a magazine editor is different. And I notice this the most among long form nonfiction writers, you know, people who um, write, you know, general nonfiction books and then also write regularly for magazines. They're the best people to work with because they're very used to working with editors. They're used to being edited. They're used to hitting their deadlines. For fiction writers, it's different. They're not used to hitting deadlines. They're not used to really being edited. They, um, it, it, they're they not um, as coached, I suppose, or familiar with, and, and nor should they have to be, in the demands of journalism. And they're used to dealing with editors who I think think about text in a different way. It's it's hard for me to, to put it, but... Do you have a preference? Well, I really love working with magazine writers, and I love working on magazine editing, because it's essentially about structure and pace. That's it. I mean, not that's it, but it is hugely important, and if I can be said to have a strength in anything, it's that. I think I do know, you know, whether it's my own books or someone else's article, how to structure something, how to give it the right kind of flow, how to give it the right kind of um, of sort of speed and clip. 
And that's something you learn from magazine editing. Well, and I think, too, yeah, when you're sitting down to write a novel, uh, you know, it's a very deep process. You're in, and it's always personal in some way, even if you're working with, you know, if you're working from the outside in with a cast of characters, it's not like really thinly veiled autobiographical fiction. It can be difficult, no matter the case, to know when you're being boring. Mm. To see, you know, but you might have a better antenna for that than others because of the magazine work. Uh, you know, I will say though that I maybe, but I'm of course, I'm terrible to be edited. I know that, and I know that I gave Jerry, my editor, a really hard time. I mean, I just don't, I just don't like it. I, I like working with writers a lot, um, but I was very self-indulgent with this book and I was allowed to be in a way that I probably never would have stood for from a writer I was editing. But it's been, look at the vindication. The book's been so well received. You must feel like you knew what you were talking about. On certain things, yes, but you never quite know what you're talking. I mean, this sounds like such a ridiculous thing to say because it's, it's, it's so trite, but it's really true. I mean, you, the author, no one will ever be work, fight harder for your book than you and, and, or that better be the case. And if you can't, if you can't fight for your book, if you feel a little wobbly, then it probably means the book's not done. If you can't say with conviction, this is it. This is where I'm going to stop. This is how it has to be. I'm not going to change one more word. Then you probably do need to do some more work. But once you feel able to say that, I think that it is you announcing to yourself and to your, your house and to the world that this, no matter its flaws, no matter how it might be perceived, because you're never going to be able to sort of um, correct everyone's perceptions or misperceptions, but this is it. This is, this is, this is the, the, the thing that I am satisfied with. And so it's not, a be, it's not necessarily a matter of being confident as a person or even confident as an artist. It's about knowing that you are done with that particular work, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's a good thing to know. Yeah. And you don't always know it. It might not. Yeah. I, I'm not sure if it's common. I don't know, or, or I don't know actually. Um, but for you on this one, it, for you, for me on this one, it was. It yeah. was the case. Uh, another thing that is said often about this book is that some of the most powerful passages in it deal with abuse, and that the writing and the control of the writing—it's uh, it's very tricky to do that well. And I can, you know, anything like there's the bad sex in fiction award. Not to make a crude comparison, but there is that. And I think it's kind of of the same vein that to write really intimate moments involving the human body mm. are very difficult to do well. Did you have rules for yourself going in? Did you have, was it all just instinct? Or yes. It was. Yeah. I okay. didn't really think that much about, about the abuse scenes and, and you're right. So much of the book is about the shame of the body and, um, and the body is an inherently, embarrassing thing to write about because it is a source of shame for all of us to varying degrees. And, um, it, it, it is a hard thing to do. It is a hard thing to write about the physical self, um, and to write about nakedness and to write about violation of that nakedness. Um, and part of it is, I think, because it's an uncomfortable topic for us all to think about. And part of it is because when we write about the body, the unclothed body, the body that is having things done to it, we are hyper aware that this is this is a topic that can lead off in very very bad directions and in embarrassing directions well, and even bad writing very fast. I mean, a lot of great writers. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like award winning, decorated every which way. 
you can read passages from their work involving sex and be like, whoa. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's you know it can you can easily fall off the the rails. You yes, know? it can. It and, can. Uh, but you seem to have navigated that fairly well. Well, thank you. That's kind of you to say. I mean, I I I think it's I I don't. I think the hardest thing is to write a happy sex scene and you know I don't think I could ever do it and um it's it, it's it's easier to write about I suppose the destruction of the body than its pleasure and I think too like you know so I'll, I'll read a good I'll read good sex writing mm. whether it's in the context of a literary novel where sex is a very small component or whether it's like something that's like more explicit right and I'll read it I'll be like damn that's good I think one of the things that I've gleaned is that like just the facts yeah like you, just the facts. Yes. Yeah. Say, say what happened. You don't have to get into metaphor and, you know, ornate language. Yeah. That's where things start to, I think, usually come apart. Yeah. I don't know. It's a hard thing to do. So uh, let's talk about you a little bit. You were born here. I was born here. Uh, and then where did you spend your childhood? So we moved to Honolulu when I was a toddler. And then we moved to New York. And then we moved to Baltimore. And then we moved to Irvine. And then we moved to Honolulu. And then we moved to a small town in, in Texas, close to the uh, Louisiana border. And then, well, not that close. What town? But, uh, called Tyler. It wasn't Tyler, that close. Tyler, Texas. But, yeah, yeah, but it's closer to Shreveport than to Dallas. Sure, right? yeah. Um, and then I moved back to Hawaii when I was in high school. And my parents came back for a year, and then they left. They moved to California. And I stayed and finished up high school, living with one of my teachers. Where did you and go to high? Did you go to the uh, Barack Obama high school? Yeah, I went to the Barack Obama high school. What's it called? Punahou. Punahou. Yeah. And then, um, and then they recently moved back to Hawaii uh, last year, actually. Oh, well, that's a nice yeah. place to get to go visit. It is. It is. Um, I, I, I don't go back that often. I went back in August, but before that, I hadn't been there since 2007. Oh. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've I know a couple of people who were raised there. And, you know, it's easy to, like, idealize that, like, oh, my God, being in Hawaii. But then I've heard stories like high school, you get, like, what is it, island fever? Whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, listen, I, I love it there. It's a very comfortable place. I mean, it really is the Asian-American promised land. I mean, there is something that is so relaxing once I'm there. Um, silly things, like you never have to spell your name. I love calling up a restaurant and making a reservation, and they say, what's the name? And I say, Yanagihara, and they say, Okay, and I say, do I have to spell it? And they say, no, I've got it. So it, it's just, it's little things like that. It's, it's now I feel like a dick for asking you how, no, no, how no. to pronounce your name. No, no, no. <laughs> it's, it's the certainty of knowing that if someone there doesn't like you, it's because of your personality and not because of your race. Right. You know, it's, it's the comfort of being um, among a group of Asian Americans who have been there for generations and, um, and uh, you know, and, and feel they have every right to be there. It's, you know, the food, it's... I mean, I, I love um, Hawaiian dance and Hawaiian music. I mean, it's and it's the thing I love most about Hawaii. I mean, there are many problems with it, and it retains this infuriating plantation mentality in a lot of ways. But it is really a place where people get up and they go outside every morning, and they actually literally say, "I'm so ha I'm so lucky to live here." Yeah. And and for the most part, people there are very aware, in a way, like nowhere else I've been that they are living in a beautiful place that um that has an ancient culture and they are lucky visitors and it's it's sort of a wonderful thing to be around that well, kind of attitude it doesn't have the like longest average lifespan by accident you know i yeah, think there's exactly something right. to it and i think there's something to living near 
or at least having an appreciation for nature. It's it's easier to maybe appreciate it in a place like Hawaii, you know, where you walk outside and it's just so magnificent. But yes. I think if you if you know the value in that, you can get it just about anywhere. It's true. Um, but the other thing is you can really become blind to it. And I think that the people there really aren't. I mean, they really do um, marvel, I think, at what's before them. And, and, you know, there are other places where you just sort of become, um, it becomes you know, white noise to you. And I think it's really not to a lot of people there. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like in Hawaii, it's so spectacular that like the second you start getting jaded, it's like, oh yeah, here's another rainbow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's a dolphin jumping. Yeah, and people or... still get very excited about the, those rainbows. You know, people have lived there for generations, which yeah. I think is a wonderful quality about people who live there. So you had an itinerant childhood. You moved around a lot. Yeah, but just to the same four or five places, it feels like, or two or three places actually. Well, but why? What was your, what were your folks doing? Well, um, my father was a researcher, a medical researcher, and he started his career late. So for most of my early childhood, he was still in training. And then, you know, he just sort of had wanderlust. And um, the final move was my mother said, this is it. Because I think he also wanted to do poverty medicine and move us to the Ozarks at one point. He just, (laughs) he was fascinated with the idea of America. You know, he had grown up in Honolulu himself and, um, and just, um, and, and loved um, the sort of iconography of, you know, the big roads and the lowlands and everything he hadn't grown up around and was intrigued by it. You know, he enjoyed Texas, lone, you know, kind of alone among us. He enjoyed Southern California. Um, he, um, y- you know, he, he loved the American West and still does. So he, and, and I think that, you know, he was the kind of person who, if he hadn't had children, would have been perfectly happy just sort of moving around all over the place. Yeah. Well, yeah. and how can you not if you're if you're raised in Honolulu, on a small island? Yes. Uh, and, and it's an American uh, state. How can you? But it not- wasn't when he was growing up. Oh, it wasn't. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. but then it becomes one. How can you not have some deep fascination with the mainland? Yes. I mean, because you're hearing about it all the time, and yeah, you know, at some point you want to set out into the the territory and check it out. Yes. Some people do. You know, there, a lot of people in Hawaii just want to stay, not just, but want to stay in Hawaii and. Um, I understand that as well, obviously. Do you have any of the wanderlust? Yeah, I mean, I would love to. I would love to live in Asia. I mean, that's really. Where? Um, I would like to live in Tokyo, Hong Kong, or Mumbai, but I would live also in Jakarta or um, probably a couple of other places. Have you been? And you've been to all these places? Yes. Okay, it's not just like Wikipedia. No, no, no. But <laughs> but I, it is something I I will regret if I don't do. Well, you know, you could be the and like like the expatriated writer. Yeah, but I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be a backpacker. I want to um, settle down. Yeah, have and a I place. want to have I want to have a job and do something interesting. Yeah. Do you have friends in those places? Like, could you or would I, you? Would I you... do. I have friends in a couple of those places. Okay. Um, and, but it's it's less about that and more simply that um, I I want the adventure of being completely out of place. Yeah, I love that feeling. Yeah. Like some people hate it. Like the people who just want to stay in Hawaii and yes. they're, they're happy with what they have. Nothing against them. Yes. But I love to feel disoriented. Yeah. I love to be sitting in a, like in a cafe and like all around me, people are speaking a language I don't understand. Yeah. That's fine. That's yeah, fine with it me. Is. It is. <laughs> it is. Uh, did you always write? Like did your parents uh, foist books upon you as a child? Was this something you were sort of born to or was it something you found? No, they did. They were... Um, it was the thing that they regularly spent money on. And my parents are both very good artists, visual artists. You know, my father um, 
you know, carved wooden figures and he painted and he painted furniture and he um, wove baskets out of pussy willows. Actually, he would cut down pussy willows and he wove these beautiful baskets. And my mother embroidered and quilted and sewed and they both drew. They had met um, when they were illustrating children's textbooks, actually, for the state of Hawaii. They were drawn um, to each other. Yeah. yeah they were. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you had to go there, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I did. <laughs> no, but they so they were both wonderful artists and it was something that they encouraged in me. Um, and can you draw? Yes, but I, I used to be much better than I am now. I, you got to practice. You do, but I also think it's something that some kids just lose. I think a lot of kids are, are kind of talented um, visual artists, and then the really good ones, the really talented ones, stay talented. Well, it's like what, what did Picasso say? He spent his entire life trying to learn how to paint like a kid. Right. I mean, right. Know, not to be too precious, but that makes some sense. Right, right, it does. But it's the people who can really withstand being formally taught. If I think after formal training, and mine... My any aptitude I had ended after formal training, um, and if you can still be an artist with something to say after formal training, you're an artist. I'm only talking visual here, but I think for many of us who were not that talented, it just it stops the sort of spontaneity um, kind of leeches out of you, or at least it did for me. Yeah, well, and the thing too is when you have formal training in any kind of um, you know artistic medium then it gives you a deconstructive mind. Right. You know, it's like you never right. watch a movie the same way again. That's right. You're, That's you're true. seeing the lighting. That's right. That's right. You're seeing the That's people right. off the off camera. That's right. And it's very hard to unlearn that. And yes. Yeah. And so and unsee it. Exactly. Yeah. So um with writing, this is something you said you majored I think before we came on you said you majored in English at Smith College. Yes. You were thinking as a college student I'm going to do something journalism, I'm going to write fiction. This was all in play at that point? Well, I suppose. I mean, I thought my immediate goals were that I was going to go to New York and work in book publishing and write a book. And and I did. It just took a very long time. 18 years. It took 18 years, yeah. And, yeah. and like writing in fits and starts. Yes. And book publishing is a hard industry to work in if you write fiction. Because you spend half of your time being just really jealous. And the other <laughs> half of the time berating yourself why can't i do this you know why aren't i doing it why why what is what's wrong with me and it's just um i don't know i think it's a very if you're a writer in new york and you um are so wedded to this idea of being a writer in new york i think it's a very um i think it's a dangerous thing what is the line from the book it's like everyone who comes to new york has ambition and atheism in common i'm paraphrasing yes is that yeah. right yeah it's true though it's really and funny and it's very true <laughs> it is true and i i just you know I, I i look at i admire people who can um talk to other writers and and be a part of the literary world and still go home at night or wake up in the morning and work on their own stuff and you know the benefit to publishing late in life, later in life, I should say, is that when you're 22 and you're working on your novel, you think, okay, I'm going to get published and then I'll be a capital A author. Then I'll know who I am. And when it doesn't happen year after year after year, after a certain point, you have to figure out what else you are, you know, and, and what else um, your life represents to you. And so by the time you do get published, if you're lucky enough, um, you're not so hung up on what it means to be an author. You are someone who writes, um, but you should be, by that point, a number of other things as well. Right. Did you ever get depressed 
Or oh yeah. Did you ever have periods where you thought it was like this isn't happening, or you thought I'm going to quit? Oh yeah, it's awful. You know, when you're writing, when you're really struggling to write a book over a period of years, every birthday, every New Year's, every sort of marker of time, you think, well, there's another year down, and I haven't done anything, and you have these fantasies that you'll wake up and somehow it'll be six months later and your manuscript will be complete. I, I actively had those fantasies and I think probably everyone does who, who gets stuck. Um, and it's a friend of mine who is a publisher gave me very good advice at some point late in the writing of the first book that was very helpful because he said, you know, you have to either do 2,000 words a week or 5,000 words a month. And those are very achievable goals. And I think we think of writing in terms of hours or pages. But what he was really saying is it's words. It's number of words. And when you bake, break it down into into a cold mathematical figure, um, it somehow seems less daunting. And so even if you only hit that 5,000 every month, which is the minimum you'd have to do, you'd have almost a full-length first draft by the end of a year. If not, if not a complete. I yeah, mean, they, if not a complete. There's no, a complete, no hard set word that's right, count rule. That's right. If you but hit 60,000 words in a year, you could right, have a that's novel. Right. But assume, you know, just assuming we're using 80,000 as a benchmark. So, but yes, but roughly. Um, but since we're being reductive about numbers. But I found that very helpful because it takes the mystery out of out of... Um, I, I think it's so easy to start fetishizing the act of creation when really often the act of creation is there's nothing mystical about it. It's simply um, it's simply not just logging the hours, but putting the words down mm. and so much can be changed after that. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like you putting the words down. Maybe it is like, you know, half of it. You've also got to put them down with a certain level of attention because I think sometimes in the past I've given myself permission to write a shitty first draft, as they say. Mm. And then I sit down and I crank out, I dump the words on the page, but it's just unusable. Like I was too permissive. You know, there's got to yes, be some sort, of, so. some sort of tension between yes. like best effort and allowing yourself to make mistakes. I, I guess it's knowing if you, I think all of us as writers either tend towards the too permissive or um, the sort of preciously exquisite. You know, when I was a, a young editor, when I was a, an assistant, there was a writer who had turned in who had sold a book on, on partial. You know, he had, it was, you know, maybe 50 pages. And he really was a wonderful writer. I mean, and just the... It, it was very spare, not the sort of writing I'd be naturally drawn to. We can't to. name him. We can't name him? I can't name him. Okay. And it just... but really beautiful writing and he never turned in the novel and it sounds like such um a simple thing to say and it is but if you never finish you'll never get published and that was something that my boss at the time had told me because you know years had gone by and i i saw her again and i said oh what happened to x's book did he ever turn it in and she said no he just never did and i said oh he's so talented and and he said and she said well yes he is but but he didn't finish. And and it's really as simple as that. And so I, as I said, you know, he tended towards the exquisite. And I think that he... Wait a minute, is he me? <laughs> and his name was. <laughs> but, and he, but, but I think that he really wouldn't turn things in unless it was perfect. And so I think if you're the sort of writer who knows that and recognizes that about herself, let's say I'm not that kind of person, then that's what you have to fight against. And, and you have to allow yourself to really... Be a, let a first draft be a first draft. And if you're someone who really just spits it onto the page, which I'm that kind of writer too, then you have to be aware of that and sort of 
you know, adjust to fit and know that your your first stuff might be drek. Um, so I think it's it's also about it's about recognizing um, kind of what your first efforts are going to be and then adjusting accordingly. Yeah, you can only learn by doing. Yeah. Figure out your own little system yeah. and strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. Uh, movie deal. I read something that like you, you've, there's been some movie interest and you turned down an offer. I turned down a few um, because, you know, listen, I mean, I, the amount of money is not life-changing money. It's just, it's just not, it's, 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 it's money, but it's not enough money for me to sell it to someone who, um, I, I suppose I still feel protective about the book and I want it to go to someone who has an idea, you know, and I want it to go to somebody who, um, isn't going to do a straight by the numbers interpretation, but is going to say, I'm taking this piece and I'm transferring it to another medium and I am going to take its themes and make it into something new. Mm. And the offers I've gotten have been lovely, but they have been for straight adaptations. And I don't want to do that with this book. Interesting. Why not? Just do you think it? I just think that whenever something is moving to another medium, you know, whether it's book to movie or whether it's, you know, um, book to stage or, or, you know, why don't they ever do movie to book? I guess they sometimes do. They sometimes do. Yeah. But, um, but I, I think whenever it, 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 it changes mediums, you want whoever is, you know, creatively making that new product to really um, have some sense of why it deserves to move mediums and, and to really earn its, its place in that medium, if that makes sense. I yeah. think that direct transference rarely works. You need, a, you need really, an auteur. I mean, not to be precious, but you need somebody who is, you need a great director. Uh, Yes. Yeah. Who's your dream director for this book? Well, I mean, there's a few, and I actually don't want to talk too much about this because I am talking to someone who's, I think, interesting. So I sort of don't want to say anything more about it now. I understand. That's a good problem to have. It is a nice problem to have. I mean, I sort of don't know if it's going to lead anywhere, but that's the movie. He has an idea, which is something. Cool. Well, and you're working on another book? No. No. <laughs> no. No. You're like, I'm going to take a break. No, I mean, I would like to do a nonfiction project, um, but I'll need funding to do it, and I really hate research. And, um, you know, what I want to do is follow the path of Buddhism from its birthplace in Sarnath outside of Varanasi in India and and track how it moved north and east throughout Asia. So I would really love to do... Um, I would read that. that book in a heartbeat. Would you? Oh, um, I'm super deep into. I mean, oh really? I don't want to overstate it, but I'm very fascinated with Buddhism. Oh well, I you know I think it's. Um, Do you meditate? No, I mean I was raised Buddhist. Okay. And um, I was not. I. <laughs> I'm one of those like white people who was raised Catholic and then got into Buddhism. Right. There's a lot of you. Yeah. Um, but I'm interested in in. You know, it's it's such a, it's a religion that I'm particularly interested, I suppose, in in this period. When you go to countries that are Buddhist and had conflicts with America, you know, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, how they have healed themselves and repaired themselves and recovered themselves um, and have done so without 
needing vengeance because that is what the culture teaches them. And I just think it's sort of an interesting lesson. I mean, there are many things that I would like to explore with the subject yeah. in this particular time, though. Well, I'm also fascinated by the the movement into the Western world, which is much, right. much more recent. It's been in the last, like, 75 years. Yes. You know, and it's it, a very particular sort of Buddhism that's been brought over here. Um, and, and, um, and of course, you know, there are many, many, many different strains, and I think much more than... than than, than people know and, and huge variations, um, you know, between, you know, sect to sect. So it's something I would love to do. I just, um, do a Kickstarter. I want you to write this book. Kickstarter. People start sending, start sending Hanya money. <laughs> oh God. Um, but, but yeah, I would like to do that. I would also like to travel throughout Japan, documenting and recording all of the country's remaining folkloric festivals and rituals. And um, that's that's a project I would I would love to do, and I just, but I, I need grants to do these things, and I need time off, obviously. Well, it could happen. Yeah, it could. you're putting it out there into the world. Yeah, it could I manifest. am. I am. I am. Um, well, it's been such a pleasure talking with you, and Brad. Thank you so much. I congratulate you on this uh, on the success of this book, and on all the you know all that it took to get it done, and I admire you for um, holding your ground and for being so sharp. Oh well, thank you. You know, that's a good lesson. Well. It sounds easy now, I suppose, the way I'm saying it, but I was, you know, a nervous wrecking on Klonopin for months. So it's, it's, I think that, I, I do think though, if I have any sort of lesson to impart, it's simply that as authors or as, or as the creators of any sort of project, um, you have much more of a right to say no than I think we've all been taught we do. Well, I guess we'll leave it there. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, guys, that is Hanya Yanagihara. Go get her novel. It is called A Little Life, a finalist for the National Book Award, a finalist for the Man Booker Prize, available now in trade paperback from Anchor Books. You can find her online on Instagram. That's the only social media that Hanya participates in. She has her own account. The handle there is at Hanya Yanagihara, and she also has an account for the novel, A Little Life. You can follow that one uh, on Instagram. The handle for it is at a little life book. Thanks to Kill Rockstars as always for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. The Other People Podcast has its own app. The app is free. Go get it. Get it on your phone. When you do that, the most recent 50 episodes of this podcast will be there waiting for you free of charge. The most recent 50, always free. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. It happens as if by magic just happens. The latest episode just shows up on the app. You can press play and listen to it. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. You can save uh, your favorite episodes. You can share things on social media. It's great. And then if you want to get access to everything, all 400 and something episodes, uh, you just sign up for premium right there within the app. It's a subscription service. It costs as little as 75 cents a month. Access to everything everywhere you go at your fingertips. Great way to support the show. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Complain. Speaking of complain, the uh, presidential primary season continues. Is anybody else uh, as fixated on this as I am? I guess I get this way every election year, but this is a spectacular shit show. That should be haunting to anybody who cares about the Republic. 
What is happening on the Republican side of the line? Like the Democratic side of the line, Hillary versus Bernie. Yeah, you might have like fundamental disagreements, but those are two serious candidates having like a, a normal debate about policy and the future of the country. Donald Trump, Ted Cruz. I don't get it. I don't get it. Trying not to be too frightened. Like, clearly, this can't happen. That's kind of the, that's what this election is. It's like, no, this isn't happening. It's the denial election. Everyone's in denial. Please remember that George Orwell died of tuberculosis and that Simone de Beauvoir died of pneumonia. That's it for now. Thanks one more time to Hanya Yanagihara. Great talk with her. Go get her novel, A Little Life, out there now from Anchor Books. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening. And uh, I will be back next week with another conversation with another writer uh, on this podcast. What do you think of that? <laughs> <laughs>